Hi, and thanks for listening to the Turtle Talks podcast, a podcast which will cover the comings and goings of the Happy Dancing Turtle Garden crew through the upcoming year. We'll cover topics ranging from planning your garden to putting your garden to bed. Now, to learn more about us, go to happydancingturtle.org. Now, let's get started. morning by the way so I, there's zero planning fine. in this whatsoever uh these were typed up five minutes ago mm-hmm. so. <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh i know you're you're, you're eager to, to get outside and right before it right. gets too hot out uh isn't that wonderful to say though before it gets too warm out i myself deal with heat a lot better than i deal with cold so oh yeah yeah uh, than, than summertime's where it's at. Yeah, me too. The most common time for me to feel overheated in Minnesota is when I'm indoors wearing all my winter gear and <laughs> next to a wood fire. That's yeah. when I'm too hot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. No, no, no. <clears throat> well, thank you for joining us. This is a special edition of Turtle Talks with the Garden Crew. Uh, my name is Colin McLean. I'm joined with Jim and Allison, and we have a special guest here, uh, Lois Braun from the University of Minnesota. Lois, hello, and Connor, who is her technical assistant. They are coming up here today to plant hazelnuts. And now we've talked in the past about the hazelnut project, um, and, and it's finally today's the day. And it's the so, shady chicken project. The shady chicken project. This is the first step. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> hazelnuts are just a component of it. So. <laughs> but uh, we're getting started today, and, and we, Lois and Connor were very gracious to step aside for Oh, however long this takes, <laughs> wink, wink, it's going to take hours is what uh, they don't know. Um, <laughs> to step aside and, and do a small uh, uh, Q&A with us. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm sure you're avid listeners, so uh, the, the, uh, the overwhelming fact that you're here with us in the studio is uh, it's okay to be a little star-struck, awestruck, yeah. starstruck. Yeah. That's okay. We're all people, you know, so... Um, but welcome. Now, what brings you up to Happy Dancing Turtle? We talked about the Shady, Pritch- Pro- uh, Shady Chicken Project. That's on our end. Now, you've been working with hazelnuts for how long? I've been working with them since uh, fall of 2002. That's a long time to focus um, your attention on one thing. I'm, it surprises me. Yeah? Yeah. Why, why, why hazelnuts? Now, we talked a little bit in the, pre, uh, the pre-interview here, the dialogue, about why the hazelnut is the pinnacle right. uh, nut of, of all uh, trees, but maybe um, you can put that on, 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 Actually, on. it's the only nut that grows here, as far as I know. <laughs> Protein on a bush. Um, I think many of us in Minnesota would rather live in the tropics, um, and there are some wonderful things that grow in the tropics, but you know, we're, we live where we live, and we've got to make do with what we got, mm-hmm. and hazelnuts, wild hazelnuts are abundant in the woods here, so the, the hybrid hazelnuts that I work with are um, crosses between the Native American hazelnuts, specifically Corliss americana. There's also Corliss cornuda, cornuda, the beaked hazelnuts, that is not, doesn't play a major role in our mix. But anyway, the, the wild, the Native American hazelnuts and European hazelnuts. Now, European hazelnuts have been selected over, you know, probably as long as corn has been selected by Native farmers. Uh, well, the Native Americans developed corn from Tiozinte, uh, so peasant 
farmers in Europe selected European hazelnuts and basically domesticated them through just um, what happens when people notice something good and they plant it and so the next generation is a little bit better and that's called recurrent selection. Over generations and generations you get something better. So the European hazelnuts have been domesticated, that means they've got a larger nut, uh, thinner shells, they're easier to crack, fairly high yields. Um, but they're not hardy in Minnesota. <laughs> mm -hmm. those, those are also called filberts, right? Filbert is another name, name for, for them. them. It's not used so much anymore because it caused confusion. So the European hazelnuts, actually, should I say, the ones that were domesticated were domesticated in the Mediterranean region. We do not have a Mediterranean <laughs> climate. Here in the U.S., they are grown in the Pacific Northwest, most notably Oregon, which does have a Mediterranean climate. A few are also grown in the Northeast, um, around, you know, along the Atlantic seaboard, but that's um, mostly they're just hobby growers in that area. There's a significant European hazelnut industry in Oregon. By contrast, our Native American hazelnuts have small nuts thick shells. Reputedly, they have outstanding flavor, but you have to get them out of the shells to <laughs> do that. And shelling them commercially uh, when they're that size, if they're the size of a pea, and the shell out rate is about 30%, that is only 30% of the weight of a, of a nut is actually edible kernel. Mm -hmm. That makes the nut especially viable on an an economic basis. Our hybrid hazelnuts are a cross between the Native American hazelnuts and the European hazelnuts. And what we're trying to obtain is a larger nut size, thinner shells of the European hazelnuts combined with the winter hardiness of the native hazelnuts. There's another factor in there as well, is that there is a disease. It's called Eastern Filbert Blight and it um, affects hazelnuts, native hazelnuts, throughout the eastern half of North America, east of the Rockies. And um, European hazelnuts are highly susceptible to it. It actually kills them. Our native hazelnuts um, co-evolved with this disease. And although our natives get the disease, it's not lethal to them at all. And so... Um, it doesn't impact the, uh, like the, the, the size of the nut or how it, the yield or anything um, like that? What it does is it blocks the vascular system in each stem. That is, it blocks the flow of nutrients up the stems and the flow of sugars down the stems. And so it basically will kill an individual stem. But because our plants are multi-stemmed bushes, um, they can afford to lose a stem here or there. Um, there are different levels of tolerance, and there are some for which the disease actually does significantly impact their yield. But there are others which can go along with the disease for years and without any seeming problem. Um, I, in one of my plantings, I flagged a bush as having it in 2008. This year I photographed that bush with a nice yield on it. So that's 10 years that it's had the disease. Although I've been working on hazelnuts since 2002, there is still a lot I do not know about them. And one of the challenges of working on a slow-growing perennial is that 
it takes a lifetime <laughs> to make progress. So anyway, our, our hybrids combine, are trying to get the, the disease resistance and the winter hardiness into the European hazelnuts for um, higher yield sure. and easier shelling characteristics. And um, I'm about to plant 2,000 plants. That will bring my total plants in the field to about 10,000, uh, which actually compared to, I think the Apple Project in Minnesota plants about 10,000 per year. <laughs> and that the idea of it is just exhausting to me. They plant about 10,000 plants per year, of which they expect one will be excellent, mm -hmm. will be a keeper. And so you plant large quantities in order to find that one plant that combines all the characteristics you are looking for. Anyway, you plant all those seeds out in year, in the fall of year two, you grow them out. So year, by year eight, you've figured out which ones are best. You propagate them vegetatively, and then you plant them in replicated trials in lots of different locations mm -hmm. to see if they really are as good as <laughs> they say, or whether that particular bush just happened to look good because it was growing in the ideal conditions. Mm -hmm. Where, uh, uh, what locations do you have uh, right now? Which um, places are you growing, testing? So this is a good point to say where we are in the process. Okay. So we actually started our process kind of halfway. Oh, okay, let me finish. So you do these replicated trials, you plant those plants, and then you have another eight years to decide, yes, they really are mm -hmm. good. So the total time is 17 years. Um, one year for the seed propagation and then eight years for the first generation and eight years for the second generation. Um, You're just getting started then. So we started, <laughs> we started in the middle actually. And the reason why is because what we started with, Phil Rudder sells seedlings. So he sells materials that we don't know exactly what they are. And um, he was selling them to farmers um, and enthusiasts, I should say. Yeah. Um, so we went around to them and we said, show us our, your best material. And um, it, a lot of times they didn't know. And we had a few experiment station plantings as well that were also seedlings. And so I actually had data on them. So we used the data to collect the best material and um, or to identify the best material and then we also, um, in the case of the farmers, sometimes they didn't know because they hadn't been paying close enough attention. So we'd put a ribbon on a bush if it was good. Mm -hmm. And then we'd go back the next year and we'd put a ribbon on a bush if it was good again. Mm -hmm. And if after two or three years it had multiple ribbons on it, we said, we're selecting this bush. So we propagated them through a process called mound layering, and I can explain that later. Um, and then we put them into five replicated trials uh, with three replications per trial. 
Uh, the locations are the St. Paul campus of the University of Minnesota, Lamberton in southwestern Minnesota, an on-farm location in Lake City, which is on the banks of the Mississippi River in southeastern Minnesota. Those three locations in Minnesota, and then Bayfield, Wisconsin, which is up on the south shore of uh, Lake Superior, um, and then Tomahawk, Wisconsin, which is further south but colder than Bayfield. <laughs> and um, so Bayfield and Tomahawk are on very sandy, um, poor nutrient soils, and the three sites in Minnesota are all on fairly rich soils. That's excellent because that brings us right into our next question, which was, why are you here at Happy Dancing Turtle? Well, um, connections is really the word. We love um, that word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it has to do with, I met um, Jim at um, Greenland's Blue Waters Conference some years ago, and also because of a connection to, um, and I never get this acronym quite right, uh, RSDP, uh, Regional Sustainable Development Partnerships. We call it the partnerships. <laughs> exactly. Um, and... For three years running, we have written grants, grant proposals that call for um, a network of regional trials that, through the sponsorship of organizations like the partnerships in different locations, to kind of demonstrate the viability of hazelnuts and mm -hmm. coordinate outreach efforts around them. And through Greg, um, Greg Schwazer at the partnerships, um, mm -hmm. It was suggested that Happy Dancing Turtle would be a good location for one of them. We never got funding for that project, but um, when I took stock of the plants that I had this year, I thought, you know, I might have just enough plants to put in that trial this year. So even without funding, I decided to go forward with it because plants are precious. We can't yes. pass them up. <laughs> we agree with that statement as well. And so, and... Um, I really like Jim's idea of putting it into the chicken. Mm -hmm. What are you calling it? The chicken? The Shady Chicken Project. The Shady Careful. Chicken Project. We're I have to put on my best Minnesotan for this. Oh! <laughs> it's the Shady Chicken Project. <laughs> because if I say it too quickly, I get the censor. Uh -huh. I get the little finger from the censor like that doesn't, that sounds like a bad word. <laughs> Except uh, it's an appropriate bad word. It, it, well, <laughs> it is very appropriate. <laughs> Good definition. Uh, and so let's talk about a little bit about the experiments. What's that we're doing right here on campus, mm -hmm. on the HD campus? Um, maybe you could go into um, you know the spacing and and how the chickens might inter you know interact with the the hazelnuts that you go right. In. How many you're putting in that kind of stuff? Right. Well, Jim can answer the specifics of that a little bit better than I can. But I'll con I can tell you why I like the idea. So there's this outfit in southern Minnesota that has developed the Shady Chicken Project. And um, they are very much focused on the chickens. The hazelnuts are just part of the shade mm -hmm. to enhance the chickens. Yes. Um, there has been some research to indicate that actually... Although the chickens might be happier and they might be healthier, they don't w gain weight as fast as they do if they're sedentary, just like we humans mm -hmm. um, 
gain weight faster if we sit at a desk than if we go jogging every day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, for those who like bushmeat, um, the chickens in the shady, shady chicken project might actually be tastier, but um, that's open to, to personal um, preference. Sure. Um, but my observation on visiting this project is that they had some fantastic hazelnuts. Mm -hmm. And nobody's done a trial to see, okay, what, what is the benefit of the chickens to the hazelnuts? Because here's the deal. When you look at one enterprise in an integrated agricultural system where the different components are supposed to benefit each other, it might be okay to have chickens that don't gain weight as fast if the chickens are benefiting the hazelnuts and keeping your production costs down on the hazelnuts to such an extent that the overall system is more productive than any one component of the system would be in isolation. And, but the benefit of the chickens on the hazelnuts has not been tested, and that's what we're going to do here. We're going to have a site that we're going to have a site that's dedicated to the chicken project, and we'll set that up in in at least two paddocks. We might have three paddocks that we can rotate chickens through, but then we'll have another control site where we're not going to put chickens into that site. It'll just be mulched with with wood chips, and um, and left to see how it does on its own without mm -hmm. the chicken impact. And and then over time, we'll be able to determine the productivity of the different sites. Mm -hmm. This is just going to be the hazelnuts in the one paddock, and then the chickens and hazelnuts in the other. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, the, mm -hmm. we'll use rotational grazing to move the chickens through different paddocks of their of that site, but then we'll have the control site without any chickens involved in. Won't, we won't let any chickens in there. So, and um, see what the difference is. Um, mm -hmm. It'll be interesting. What's the length of this study going to be? As long as you can make it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 20 years? Yeah. It's as a long starting as point. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we want these hazelnuts to be a long-lived perennial. And um, keeping them productive over time is going to be a challenge. Because one thing that I have observed is when they're about eight years old, their um, productivity can be quite impressive. That is, the ones that are productive genotypes, but I've got several plantings where by year 12, they're just not looking so good, and I want to keep them productive because I think this is a good time to revert to the original question on the list, which is why is the university interested in hazelnuts? And that is, um, right now we've got an agricultural landscape that is dominated by annual crops. Uh-oh. They are green for four and a half or five months a year. Or less. Or less. Up in northern Minnesota, it's probably less. Mm -hmm. In southern Minnesota, five months is mm -hmm. actually a little bit on the long side. Um, mm -hmm. They green up. Um, I've seen fields that were still mostly brown in early June, and then they start to get brown again sometime in September. Sure. Um, and in the meantime, we're wasting photosynthetic potential. Um, we've got all this wonderful free solar energy that falls on the earth every day of the year. And um, I, 
What is the st statistic? I've heard something like the amount of solar energy that falls on the earth every every year is in excess of some many orders of magnitude larger than all the fossil fuels stored beneath the surface of the earth. Uh, so if we <laughs> only we could capture that, we'd have our our energy problems completely solved. Um, so we're wasting photosynthetic potential. Our, our listeners are well aware of the, the connection between plant exudate and, and, and our living soils and the, and the microorganisms that live there and that, that relationship. So they're aware of the, the need for living plants and living Great. roots. We all know what around. Jim thinks is soil health. Perhaps you have an opinion <laughs> on the necessity of including soil health into our agricultural practices. Um, my opinion is that yes, <laughs> necessary. <laughs> That's and, a whole other podcast. And so we've got, so I'm glad that you've already covered covered that territory. And then we've also got the barren soils that are leaching nutrients, um, contributing to peak flow of our streams because they're not transpiring moisture away from the soil and we're getting abundant rains that um, that water is just washing into our precious we're in the land of 10,000 lakes, and how many of them are too polluted to swim in and catch fish from and drink from? Going down, the, um, you know, we've washing nitrogen into the Mississippi River, going to the Gulf of Mexico. You know all of those problems. So for water quality reasons, we're also trying to blanket the landscape with perennial plants. And so the Hazelnut Project is part, is just one of, um, a collection of new crops that the University of Minnesota is trying to develop under the title Forever Green. And um, so even though hazelnuts only add about a month or two to that green period, um, when they die down in the fall, they don't disappear. They've still got branches there catching the wind, offering a windbreak. And they've got a deep fibrous root system. Um, I've excavated hazelnut roots down to nine and a half feet. Oh my. Uh, we used a backhoe to do the initial digging and then we did subsequent digging by hand and the hazelnut roots were still going, but we, get, we gave up. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's a fibrous root system, which means that theoretically it should be capturing a lot of leaching nutrients and excellent for holding the soil, especially in southeastern Minnesota where we've got that very rolling topography. Um, it's very helpful in protecting against soil erosion. Sure. In this part where you've got sandy soils, and actually the sandy soils are where most of the native hazelnuts are located, um, you've got um, the potential of protecting against leaching. I've been reaching out for answers to the questions that I have Not finding motivation in the moments that we share There's someone on my mind who's eyes I see each time I sleep I'm hoping for a moment that you'll be here next to me For now I'll just keep sleeping so I dream I'm not alone And one day I will reach you I hope one day Lois, you talked a little bit about mound layering earlier uh, in the recording. Maybe you could kind of go into details about what that means and, and maybe you could say why that's the, the method that you've chosen for this, uh, this project. Well, um, to go back to the apple, 
Mm -hmm. um, you can't take a, a Honeycrisp apple, take a seed out of it, plant it, and grow another Honeycrisp apple. So I think most people know that if you want a Honeycrisp apple, you graft a little bit of a bud from a Honeycrisp apple onto a rootstock, which can be anything, another kind of apple tree. Um, and the top of the apple will be Honeycrisp, and the bottom of the apple will be whatever. <laughs> um, whatever is yeah. locally adapted, usually, sure. and disease tolerant and so forth. Um, but the problem with hazelnuts is we can't graft for two reasons. One is, for some reason, they just don't graft very easily. They require heat at the, at the point of grafting. And put mm. applying heat to a bush is kind of difficult. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other reason is that they're multi-stemmed. And so you could graft a stem, but then another stem will grow up to the side of it that won't be grafted. And before you know it, you'll have this one grafted stem in the middle and this bush of mm -hmm. the rootstock material that will completely overwhelm it. And so it just isn't a practical solution. Um, so if you want to get a large number of new plants of the same genetics, there are several approaches, but the old traditional method is still the most viable one for us, and that is mound layering. So what you do is you cut the bush to the ground in the winter when most of the nutrients from the, the plant have been translocated into the root system for safe storage over the winter. Uh, that's what happens when leaves turn color and fall, they translocate their nutrients down into the roots and then in the spring they reverse the project the process. So it doesn't hurt the plant, at least not very much, if you cut it down in the winter. In the spring it sends up new stems and midsummer you tie a twisty, you know, just a wire, a plastic covered wire around each one of those stems and you paint a solution of um, it's a synthetic analog of a natural plant hormone that promotes rooting. Uh, you can buy, um, in garden centers, you can buy things like Root One or Hormex um, are the same material. So you paint a solution of that on the base of the stems, about one inch above the, the girdle, and then you pile sawdust over them. And the sawdust creates a moist rooting environment, moist and dark rooting environment similar to the soil. The advantage of sawdust, though, is that it's friable. So you keep it moist all summer long. And then right about fall, um, about the time of leaf drop, you pull the sawdust away. I prefer to use my hands because I don't want to damage those little roots. and roots have grown into it above the layer of the girdle. What's happening here is that um, the stem is still <clears throat> getting soil and, I mean, it's still getting moisture and nutrients from the mother plant's root system going up the stem because of the xylem, that is the capillaries on the inside of the stem, are close enough to the center of the stem that they are not girdled by that twisty. Um, but the phloem, which are the capillaries that uh, transport photosynthates from the leaves down to the root system, to feed the root system, they get to that girdle and they can't go any further because they're on the exterior. And so they 
are put to use growing a second root system above them, above the mother root system. And as that stem grows through the summer, it grows out and that um, twisty increasingly girdles it. So by the time that you dig them up in the fall, it snaps off if things go right. <laughs> you have to cut it off. Um, and you have a nice root system above it. Sometimes it works great, sometimes it doesn't work mm. at all. So mm. Jim's gonna find out today how some, some of them are great and some of them aren't. And then I guess maybe one last, one other question is, Forever Green is big about the economics. Mm. So what are, what are the, what's the market potential for hazelnuts? The market potential is very, very good. Um, I can't remember the exact statistic, but um, a, min a very small proportion of the hazelnuts consumed in the United States are grown in the United States. Um, also, compared to Europe, when I talk to people about my work with hazelnuts, if they have any sort of European roots, they say, I love hazelnuts. Mm -hmm. Europeans eat hazelnuts the way we Americans eat peanut butter. Mm -hmm. Americans, on average, eat four hazelnuts per year. <laughs> so if we could start making hazelnut spreadable, hazelnut butters that are spread for bread, mm -hmm. um, the market potential is just unimaginable. Um, there are other uses for hazelnuts as well. Um, we currently have been working with a group of growers. Actually, my counterpart in Wisconsin was key in getting this going. There's American Hazelnut Company, and it's called American because of the American, American hazelnut as the species of hazelnut being the component of it. Sure. Um, anyway, it's um, a grower-owned business that has owned some processing equipment on our developing products and doing kind of collaborative marketing. Um, right now they are selling whole roasted kernels, but they're also uh, crushing hazelnuts into oil, which apparently has um, all the same characteristics of, as olive oil, and um, I'm not a food scientist, so I don't understand all this, but it has virtually identical fatty acid composition and it's highly prized um, by chefs for the cooking properties mm. and especially for salad oil. Interesting. Um, I'm not a connoisseur, so mm. I don't know this difference myself. <laughs> but um, so, uh, and then they're also selling the meal left after taking the oil out, which can be included in all sorts of baking products. So, you know, I've. I've had people serve me cakes and muffins and things, mm -hmm. including the hazelnut meal. Um, one of our growers is selling his <coughs> hazelnut oil exclusively as a skin oil. Mm -hmm. And apparently it's highly prized by massage therapists. And when you spread it on your th skin as a moisturizer, which I really appreciate in the wintertime when my skin is super dry, um, it it soaks in quickly so it doesn't um, it doesn't feel greasy mm. um, so I see I see a potential with it for lip 
balm. <laughs> because I have chapped licks all the time. Uh, so things like that. I, I don't think we ever uh, found out how many plants are you going to be putting in ground today? I think we're doing about 50. They're going to be on a 12-foot in row spacing, so the rows, well, 12-foot mm -hmm. row spacing, so the rows will be about 12 feet apart, and then in the rows, they'll be about 5 feet apart, so 12 by 5 spacing. You're hoping to get that, that, that uh, hedge then, is that? I think so. Yeah? yeah. In about 5 years from now, you know. Well, um, at 12 feet, it will not be a hedge so much. If you want a hedge, we could put them closer, so it's up to you. Make a I guess, maze I guess we still have some stuff to, to, uh, to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad I sat in. I really learned a lot from you about hazelnuts and propagation and, and just in general. So, And I'm really excited to get started today. Good. Thank you for all for uh, tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, please let us know at info at happynetsandturtle.org. We appreciate all the feedback we get. Uh, if, you, if you're interested in learning more about Lois's project, you can just Google the Midwest Hazelnuts. And... Yeah, the group with which Lois works will uh, will be up, will, will come front and center, and you'll learn all about it there. And check out the Forever Green Project. They're doing a lot of good work above and beyond hazelnuts. Well, maybe not above, but beyond hazelnuts. Most of them are shorter than hazelnuts. Most of them are shorter. They're under <laughs> hazelnuts. <laughs> Some of them are a lot shorter. <laughs> all right. Uh, so thanks for turning in. Um, have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Bye.